Brothers and sisters, I ask that you turn with me in your Bibles to our text this morning, which comes from the book of Revelation. We'll be looking at chapter 5 and verses 8 to 14. Revelation chapter 5, verses 8 to 14. Revelation chapter 5, verses 8 to 14. Please then, brothers and sisters, hear with me the reading of God's inspired and inerrant Word. And when He had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the twenty-four elders fell down before the Lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain. And by your blood you ransom people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God. And they shall reign on the earth. Then I looked and I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders, the voice of many angels numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying, To Him who sits on the throne into the Lamb. Be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshipped. Thus far is a reading of God's Word. Now, brothers and sisters, last week, We looked at the first half of chapter 5 as we continued in the second vision that John had received. And the question that we said was at the center of those first seven verses was who was worthy? Who was worthy to open the scroll? As John sees in this vision, one seated upon the throne and in the right hand of that one was a scroll. Front and back was writing upon the scroll, and the scroll was sealed with seven seals. Now we said that scroll that was in his right hand right, was symbolic of the eternal decrees of God concerning the redemption of the elect and the judgment of the unbeliever. But in order for those eternal decrees to be executed on earth, one had to be able to open the scroll. But not only open it, to carry God's plan to fruition. Someone had to bring the kingdom to consummation. Someone had to bring the church to glorification. Someone had to dispense judgments upon the ungodly. For without it, there is no hope for the church. How does the church become victorious? How is the church delivered from its enemies if there is not one who can open the scroll? And so we've seen last week that, that John begins to weep as the angel calls out to all, Who is worthy 
to open the scroll. And he weeps. Why? Because all are silent. All are silent. Every voice was shut up by the inquiry of this angel. All were forced to face the fact that there is none who are worthy in heaven or on earth or under the earth to open that scroll. None of God's creation are equipped for the task. None of them can execute God's plan to perfection. None were given the power and authority authority to do that. Right? None had the ability to conquer God's enemies. None had the ability to establish the kingdom of peace here on earth. And so it was this gut, gut-wrenching reality that, that John begins to feel. And for a moment we see John begin to envision a world in which there is not ultimate redemption for the church. But just as he weeps and begins to think that there is no one who is worthy to open the scroll, an elder comes up to John. And he says three words that changed the countenance of John forever. And those three words were this, Weep no more. Weep no more. And oh, brothers and sisters, what a, what a roar that ought to elicit in your own hearts as you hear those words read. Weep no more. Just as surely as a roar was elicited, a roar of praise and exaltation was elicited in the heart of John as he hears these words which now satisfy the very longings of his soul as he knows that yes, there is one who is worthy. There is one who is worthy. He is the Lamb of the tribe of Judah, he is told. The root of David. He is conquered. He is the one who is worthy. And yet, what does John see? As he beholds the one who is worthy, who is Jesus Christ, he, he does not see the lion of the tribe of Judah, but rather he sees the lamb. He sees the lamb. He sees the lamb standing there as though the lamb had been slain. What John is seeing here in that vision is the exalted Lamb. The Lamb who is now risen from the dead, who is risen from the grave, conquering His enemies through His wounds by being crucified on the cross. And now He is receiving His reward in heaven. He is receiving His glory. He is receiving all authority and power to exercise that on heaven and in earth. He is the one, the Lamb who was slain, who God now governs all of human history through. So that now, Christ's church, as we hear these things and as we read these things and as we're told about these visions, as we see that Lamb standing there in glory, having taken that scroll in His right hand, that is now an assurance to the church and the church of every age, that every single obstacle to the church's victory has now been removed by the death and resurrection of Christ, as Christ now is exalted in heaven, bearing those wounds of glory. And yet, brothers and sisters, I want us to see this, that those in heaven, when they, when they look upon Christ's wounds, they don't cry over the wounds out of sadness for the wounds. But rather, they look upon Christ's wounds in heaven and they rejoice because of the wounds. Because those wounds that they see 
of the slain Lamb are His trophies over all principalities and over all powers which demonstrate His victory over every enemy and the success of the church that will ultimately come to fruition. And so we see this rejoicing among the heavenly choir as we read that Jesus takes the scroll. And then what happens? All of the creation, all of the redeemed saints fall down and worship before the feet of King Jesus, acknowledging now that it is His right to bring the kingdom to perfection. It's His right to bring the kingdom to perfection. And that leads us then into our first point this morning and our our first of only two points this morning. And that first point this morning that we're going to look at is called the worship of the Lamb. The worship of the Lamb. Now the very first thing, brothers and sisters, I want us to see and recognize once more is the holy and the reverential disposition of the saints in the worship of the Lamb. What do we see immediately after Jesus takes the scroll? What do they do? What are we told in verse 8? They fall down and they worship Him. In this vision, what we see is the enthronement of the mediator and immediately He is met with fear and trembling from the saints who are in heaven with Him. Immediately that is what He is met with. The saints, the redeemed church, are enthralled by His majestic presence. And they cannot help but cast themselves down before His feet. Right? They are overtaken by His glorious presence. And so that it drives them to their knees before their Redeemer. Right? In this picture, what we see is that the redeemed church understands its smallness in comparison to the greatness of the Lamb. And what does it fill them with? It fills them with a deep sense of humility. It fills them with a deep sense of humility. This is what drives them to their knees. But in doing so, I want you to see this. Do you see that heaven is not for the proud? Heaven is not for the proud. Heaven is not for those who do not willingly bow the knee and worship to the King. And yet, brothers and sisters... We know all of these things. And yet, oftentimes, that same fear that is demonstrated in this text, that same holy, reverential disposition, oftentimes does not overtake us on the Lord's Day when we enter into the heavenly sanctuary with our Lord. The fear we read about somehow is missing as we come into the Lord's sanctuary. Why is that, I ask you? Is it because we do not have a sense of Christ's presence with us as we gather? Because we cannot tangibly see Him before our eyes? Is that why fear does not overtake us in the worship of our Lord? I want you to listen to what David says about the presence of the Lord in Psalm 139 and verses 7-10. to This is what David says. Where shall I go from your spirit? Or where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, 
Even there your hand shall lead me, and your right hand shall hold me. Do you see, brothers and sisters, that David recognized that he was forever living before the presence of the Lord. And this is the same thing that the saints in heaven, that the redeemed church understand as well, which causes them to throw themselves down, to prostrate themselves before the Lord. And yet, brothers and sisters, we have the promises of God. We have the, the Word of God. And in Matthew chapter 28, towards the end in verse 20, He promises His church something. And that is this, that I will be with you until the end of the age. Right? We have that promise from the Lord that as we worship the Lord, as we go about teaching, making disciples, baptizing, He says, I will be with you. I will be present with my church. And yet, brothers and sisters, we come into the worship of the Lord and we're not filled with the same fullness of life and the same zest and zeal for worship of God as we read here that occurs in heaven. I ask, knowing that Christ's presence is amongst us today, that, that Christ by His Spirit is with us, how can we ever walk into the worship of the Lord unprepared, preoccupied with other things, uncaring, indifferent, knowing that we are in the presence of God, that He sees everything that is occurring and going on. And yet, too often, we walk in here preoccupied. We walk in here cold and indifferent and uncaring. Instead of coming in here ready to worship the Lord and adore Him and stand awe-inspired by our Lord and His great work of creation and of redemption. Right? I ask you, why is it so hard for those of us who have been redeemed by Christ, For why is it so hard for our, our souls to be lifted up in total awe-aspiring worship and praise of our God. Right? Why is it so hard for us to, to humbly come before Him and, and bow the knee cheerf cheerfully and joyfully every Lord's Day as we come into His presence? Does communion with Christ this day and every Lord's Day not cause your soul to be lifted up out of whatever plagues you that week? Have you not been quickened by the Holy Spirit? Listen, brothers and sisters, as we read our text today at the praise of the saints, let us learn from their praise how we are to be bringing ourselves into heavenly worship that we participate in each and every Lord's Day. Because we are coming into the, the, the heavenly sanctuary. We are coming before the throne of God every Lord's Day to celebrate our redemption. We are coming here, gathered today, to celebrate our Redeemer. We are walking into the sanctuary of God, having been fitted with graces and gifts that we have been called to use within the, the body of Christ. And yet, brothers and sisters, so often we, we fall short in every one of these areas I've touched on. This is why we must be coming every Lord's Day likewise as beggars. We have to come as beggars before the throne of grace, pleading that God would grant to us the desire and the strength to exercise ourselves in all that He has given us to do in, for the exaltation and the glory of His name. Now next then, brothers and sisters, I want us to see something else. So not only 
when we worship the Lord, are we to come holy and reverential in our disposition? But likewise, look at what these saints brought with them. In verse 8, as they fall down, we're told that what are each holding? Each are holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. Now we have to ask, you know, what is the harp? What was the harp? What was the purpose of the harp? Now, the harp then was a, was an instrument in Old Testament worship that what, that God commanded the Levitical priesthood to play in temple worship. Right? And we read this when Hezekiah restores temple worship in 2 Chronicles chapter 29 and verse 25. This is what we, what we hear. And he stationed the Levites in the house of the Lord with cymbals and harps and lyres according to the commandment of David and of Gad, and of Gad the king's seer and of Nathan the prophet for the commandment was from the Lord through His prophets. And so we see that the harp was an instrument God commanded be used by a particular set of people that He set apart for His worship. Right? That was the purpose of the harp under the Old Covenant. Now in Exodus chapter 30 and verse 1, God then instructs Moses to build an altar upon which incense was to be burned unto the Lord. And in verses 7 and 8 of Exodus chapter 30, this is what we read. And Aaron shall burn fragrant incense on it. Every morning when he dresses the lamp, he shall burn it. And when Aaron sets up the lamps at twilight, he shall burn it. A regular incense offering before the Lord. That's what it was instituted to be. But then likewise, look what David says in Psalm 141 in verse 2. He says this, Let my prayer be counted as incense before you and the lifting up of my hands as an evening sacrifice. So we see even in the, in the Psalms that David, metaphorically speaking, already uses the picture of, of prayer being as incense. And so we see that already. But then we have to ask the question, what does all of this mean together? What does each one holding a harp and having a golden bowl of incense, which are the prayers of the saints, what does that even mean? Well, I ask you, brothers and sisters, what has God called us to be? What has He called us to be? We spoke about this already in chapter 1, and we'll speak about it again soon. But He called us to be a kingdom. Right? Priest unto God the Father. And so what we need to see by this symbolism is that the praise that was once brought before God by the priest now is brought before God by all believers who belong to the priesthood. Right? What, what was once brought before God by the select group of people that God had set apart and appointed under the Old Covenant, under the New Covenant is now brought before God by everyone. Right? We, are, we are all to be bringing our harps and a golden bowl of incense every time we meet as being members of the royal priesthood. It is all of us who enter into the, the throne room and offer prayers 
unto God and worship God and praise Him with great exuberance and joy, which likewise the instruments were symbolic of. I hope I don't disappoint anyone with what I'm about to say. But the harp and this golden bowl of incense are not to be taken literally. Right? These are, these are symbols. And so I, I hope I do not disappoint anyone who, who thought upon their perfection that they would become world-renowned harp players in heaven. Or that we'd walk around with golden bowls of incense around our, our necks or our waists. No, this is symbolic language, brothers and sisters, in our text, which is meant to communicate something to us, that everyone in the New Covenant, that all of the redeemed church, participate in the spiritual priesthood of God. Right? We all participate in it. Right? We are all called to come before the throne and worship God from the least of us to the greatest of us because of Christ's work of mediation. No longer is there just one group who stands in the Holy of Holies and, and others have to stand outside. But we all come into the heavenly sanctuary because of the blood of Christ. Right? Our worship now and our prayers are made acceptable. Right? They, they become a sweet-smelling aroma to God. A sweet-smelling fragrance because they are made acceptable through Christ. Because they are made in the name of Christ. Because Christ cleanses our prayers from all of their impurity. And so now we can draw boldly to the throne of grace, knowing what it is that the author to the Hebrews says about Christ, that He is our High Priest who now lives to make intercession for the saints. And so it is every Christian's duty here, it is every Christian's duty here to devote yourself to the priesthood and to the work of the priesthood, which is what? To come into the sanctuary and to offer up prayers unto God, and to offer up high praises unto God, and to worship God. This is all of our callings. But what I want us also to see is not only do they come praying unto God, and and, and, uh, praising God with exuberant joy and exaltation, but it also means coming into God's sanctuary singing. We are to come into the sanctuary of God Singing. That is how we are to worship Him as well. We see this at the beginning of verse 9. Those first five words. And they sang a new song. We need to understand that new songs were sung in the Old Testament when God defeated Israel's enemies. Then a new song would be sung. We see this, for example, in Exodus chapter 15 after the Israelites are delivered from captivity, in Exodus 15, we have Moses and the Israelites then sing a new song unto the Lord. Which tells us what? That every new act of mercy from God for His people ought to cause us, ought to compel us to sing a new song unto the Lord. This is what the psalmist tells us. Psalm 98, verse 1. Oh, sing a new song unto the Lord! For He has done marvelous things. But what I want us also to see is that the new song that is sung is only sung by those who experienced the mercy. It is only sung by those who were delivered by God. We see that in Exodus 15. It wasn't every human being who lived who sung the song of deliverance. It was the Israelites who sung the song. 
And so just like them, the redeemed in this vision who are represented by those 24 elders are the ones who, who sing this new song unto the Lord, having experienced the redemption that comes about through faith in Christ as they have been delivered from every one of their enemies, from, from death and from the devil and from the world and from sin. Now, brothers and sisters, we all are fully aware that there are many people who, who sit in the pews each week and they sing along with us. Right? They, they sing the new song with us. But sadly, they will not join in the heavenly chorus of the saints. There are many who sing the new song who will not join in the heavenly choir. Why is that? Because there are many who come to church apart from faith in Christ. Right? There are many who come to church believing that on the basis of their own good deeds and their own good works, that their prayers and their praises will be found acceptable before God. There are others who come to church out of just tradition. It's what they've known since they were young. And so they come singing the new song with the church, yet never themselves knowing who the Redeemer is. Having knowledge of the Redeemer, but never resting in the Redeemer. Never trusting in that knowledge of the Redeemer. Never forsaking their own righteousness for His righteousness which comes by faith alone. Now, brothers and sisters, we're all weak. We're all sinners. Every one of us that are here today. None of us are deserving to enter into the throne room and bow the knee and to offer prayers and praises that are acceptable before God. But thanks be to God that it does not depend on our strength or our wisdom or our righteousness, but it depends on Christ. And it depends on whether or not you are in Christ. If you are in the Lion of the tribe of Judah, if you are in the root of David who has conquered, if you are in the One who alone is worthy. And you know one of the ways you can answer that question for yourself? If you are in the One who is worthy, ask yourself, do I know this new song? Not do I sing it, because anyone can sing it, but do you know the new song? Do you know that God has placed you now in His heavenly choir through faith in Christ? Do you come every Lord's Day with harp in hand and with a bowl full of incense offering prayers and praise to God? Have you come joyfully singing to the Lord about the redemption that you yourself have experienced? Because brothers and sisters, this is what the new song is about. The, the song in chapter 4 was a creation song. Chapter 5, we have our redemption song. We have our redemption song in chapter 5. And I pray, brothers and sisters, that everyone here has experiential knowledge of the riches of that redemption in our own lives. Now this leads us then to our, our second and our final point this morning, which is entitled, The Worthiness of the Lamb. 
So we looked at what worship ought to look like. But now let's look at the worthiness of the one in whom we worship. The worthiness of the Lamb. We can only sing the new song. We can only cry out to God, Abba, Father. We can only ever enter into heavenly glory because of Jesus Christ who was slain. Right, we need to understand this. The Son of God, eternally perfect in being, okay? But now as mediator, He has been qualified to be the Savior of the church, satisfying the law's demands, being obedient unto death. This is what the author to the Hebrews says. Hebrews chapter 5, verse 8 and 9, where we are told, although He was Son, He learned obedience through what He suffered. And being made perfect, that is, as mediator, He became the source of eternal life to all who believe. And so it's on the basis of this, of the obedience of Christ and of His suffering and death, that the church now sings. Because we read that in verse 9. Worthy are you to take the scroll, open its seals. Why? Why is He worthy? For you were slain. That's why they sing. Because He was slain. Now, brothers and sisters, remember what happened when Christ initially was slain. Right? His, his, the news of His death was, was bad news for the apostles. If you remember when Christ was first captured and He was crucified and He was placed in the grave, what happened? All of the apostles scattered. They, they went and they hid out of fear and trembling of what the world might do to them, thinking that Christ had failed. But what was it that woke them out of that spiritual slumber and caused them to come out of hiding? It was that encounter with the risen Lamb. It was that encounter with the resurrected Christ that caused them to come out from that spiritual slumber as it gave proof to them that Christ's enemies did not win, that Christ's enemies did not conquer Him, but that rather they didn't take His life, but He voluntarily, voluntarily gave it up in order that He might take it up again, knowing that without the forgiveness, without the shedding of blood, there can be no forgiveness of sin. Seeing the, the risen Christ was proof to them that the enemies of God did not win. And that Christ canceled that sin debt that stood against each and every one of us, nailing it to the cross. And in doing so, He, he triumphed over all of our enemies, right? putting them to open shame. This, brothers and sisters, is why Christ as mediator is worthy to be worshipped. For He gave His life a ransom for ours. He gave up His life for yours. See how glorious then, brothers and sisters, the death of Christ is. See how glorious His death is and how worthy He is to be praised. But what I also want us to see is that the saints here in this vision do not just praise Him because He was slain, but they likewise Praise Him because of what His death achieved. And we see that after. Saying, you have, been, you have ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. 
Now we need to understand that this word ransomed can also mean purchased. And it conveys the idea of purchasing a slave out of bondage. It conveys the idea of purchasing a slave out of bondage. This is what we're being told Jesus did for us in His death. He purchased us, brought us out of bondage to be a people unto God. Paul, in Colossians chapter 1, verses 21 and 22 says this, as he declares to, to the saints in Colossae who were once enslaved to sin, he says, and you who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he is now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach. Right? Paul, again, Ephesians chapter 1 verse 4, says that the saints were chosen in Christ before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before Him. Isaiah chapter 42, verse 6, we're told that God gave Christ as a covenant to the people. He did so so that Christ would be a light unto the nations, to open the eyes of the blind, to, to bring out the prisoners from the dungeon. And this is what we need to see, brothers and sisters, that, that Christ did just that. But he, he accomplished that. And so he ransomed for himself a people. But the people that he ransomed was not just one nation. It just wasn't one type of, of people group. Nor did he purchase all people everywhere. But what are we told? Who did he purchase? By your blood you ransomed people from every tribe and language and people and nation. Jesus Christ did not die for the everyone in the world. Neither did He die just to make salvation possible to everyone. But He died to buy a people for God. And He did just that. Right? He accomplished the very purpose that He was sent to do. Which is what in Matthew chapter 1, verse 21? To save His people from their sins. Jesus Himself understood the mission. This is why he says in John chapter 10, verse 15, Just as the Father knows me, and I know the Father, I lay down my life for the sheep. He lays down his life for the sheep. Now I ask you, just think back real quickly to how he just described what being ransomed means. It means to be purchased out of one's slavery. So the slave who has now been purchased has liberty, doesn't he? He's at liberty to enjoy all the benefits of that freedom. But now think of this. If, if Christ ransomed the world and everyone in it, then what does that mean? That He purchased liberty for the entire world and that they are all now free from the bondage of sin and they all have liberty to use all of the benefits that Christ has granted through faith in His Son. But you only believe that if you're a universalist. And so nobody believes that. And so what we see and what we need to see here in our text is really the fulfillment of Genesis chapter 12, verse 3. Where God promises Abraham that I will bless the families of the earth through you. So that now all of those who are in Christ are heirs of Abraham according to the promise. 
And so do you see that God's eternal decree to save particular individuals from every tribe, tongue, and nation for His own possession has been the one plan of God all along. And we read about that from Genesis all the way to Revelation. And it's brought to fruition by the one who is worthy to execute God's eternal decree in history. But we have to ask, with what purpose? So He was slain to redeem a people from every tribe, tongue, nation. But for what purpose? Well, we're told to make us a kingdom and priests to God reigning on the earth. Now, we've highlighted this before, but I'll do it again. That this language of being kingdom, being a kingdom and being priest is language that is drawn out of the Old Testament in reference to Israel. We see this in a text like Exodus chapter 19, verses 5 and 6. Here's what we read. Now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice, you're talking to Israel, and if you will keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples. For all the earth is mine. And here it is. And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. That was the promise made to Israel upon obedience to the covenant. Yet, what do we know? Israel failed to obtain that through their endeavors. But the, the question we must ask is, well, did, God purpose, did God's purposes ever fail in establishing a kingdom of priests and a holy nation? And the answer is absolutely not. Paul says in Romans 9, verse 8, this means that it is not the children of flesh who are the children of God, but the children of promise who are counted as His offspring. Brothers and sisters, it is the children of promise who Peter then applies Exodus 19 to in 1 Peter chapter 2 when he calls the redeemed church a holy priesthood, or excuse me, a royal priesthood and a holy nation, a people of God's own possession. And so, brothers and sisters, we need to see this was the mystery that was veiled under the Old Covenant that has been revealed in the New. That the Gentiles likewise are heirs to the promises through Jesus Christ and through faith in the Gospel. And now God through, God through Christ has broken down the wall of hostility, making one new people, both of Jew and Gentile, who as Paul calls them in Galatians 6.16, the Israel of God. Right? They, the church, is the true Israel, the spiritual Israel that God had elected from all of eternity to be His precious and prized possession. And so we need to see that where Adam failed in the garden, where Israel failed time and time again throughout their history, Christ did not fail, but He accomplished the law's demands. He fulfilled the covenant of works so that those whom the Father loved from all of eternity, whom He he sent His Son to die for, would be His. And He would make them a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. And He did just that through Jesus Christ. Which means, brothers and sisters, what? That God knows His people. That He knows every individual by name. He knows where you are in the world. What a thought! That God sent His Son to die, not for just a clump of humanity in general, 
But He sent His Son to die for people in particular that He knew by name and chose to be His people. How did that to cause us to worship our Lord? There's nothing in you. It's all of God. It's all of the Lamb. So that you can know now, if you are a saint, that Christ died for me. You can say that. Christ died for me. He didn't just die for humanity. He died for me. Although that ought to be said most humbly. And knowing this, how can we not rejoice in our Savior? How can we not see the worthiness of the Lamb and come together and lift up our voices to sing the new song? Right now, brothers and sisters, Jesus is ruling and reigning in heaven. And right now, the church is ruling and reigning on earth. You might ask, well, it doesn't look like that. How, how, how can you say that? How can that be? The church on earth rules through our prayers. Right? Through our prayers we are ruling. As God answers them and does according to His will on earth as He does in heaven. As those who have been quickened by the Holy Spirit, we rule over the tempter in our lives here on earth. Right? This is how we are ruling and reigning as a church even here today. Yet, brothers and sisters, what this also ought to cause us to understand is, is at the moment God has spiritually established His kingdom here on earth in the hearts of His people. But it ought to cause us to long for the day when He returns and establishes the new heavens and the new earth where we will rule and reign with Him forever. And do we see what this revelation does to the saints? Look with me at verses 11-13. to 13. Then I looked and I heard around the throne and the living creatures and around the elders the voices of many angels numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And I heard every creature in heaven and on the earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying to Him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. Do you see the picture here? The angels are now singing about how worthy the Lamb who was slain was. You see, as the mysteries of redemption is even revealed to the angels, they cannot sit in silence, but they must proclaim the praises of their God. What else do we see? All of creation is around the throne praising Him. Why? Because today, creation groans as creation has been affected by the fall, hasn't it? It it groans waiting for the return of Christ itself. And so creation sings likewise unto the Lord, waiting to be purified by fire when the Lord returns to establish His new heavens and new earth. What a glorious conquest, isn't it, brothers and sisters, by the worthy Lamb of God? One further detail I want to draw out is in verse 13. The worship here is directed to Him who sits on the throne and the Lamb. The same worship directed to Him who sits on the throne and the Lamb. They both receive the same worship 
As every creature declares of both of them, blessing and honor and glory and might forever. They are declaring glory and honor and blessing to the triune God. To the triune God. This is glory that is being proclaimed for both their work of creation and their work of redemption. This is glory directed to the triune God whose throne rules over everything. And brothers and sisters, what a vision then it is for God's people. What a vision. What a vision for that first century church in Asia Minor. That they can know that the Roman government wasn't in control and ruling over all. What a vision to see this. And know that whatever tribulation they go to, that the Lord is going to bring them through it to the end. What a vision, knowing that every effort of every enemy of God is futile. right? That it cannot thwart the will of God. And brothers and sisters, what a vision then it is for the saints today as well. This is why we should not fear or tremble of what the world can do to us or what persecution or tribulation that we must endure for the sake of Christ. For Christ has promised to His church that the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Right now, Christ holds His church in His bosom and He protects her by rod and by staff so that we might know that He will not lose one who are His. That we can be sure that everyone who has been redeemed by the blood of Christ will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. That no one can snatch us from God's hand for the throne rules over all. This is why we must come in here every Lord's Day declaring the excellencies of God declaring the excellencies of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, as we mimic our heavenly counterpart. That is what we are to be mimicking. This is ideal worship that we are reading about, that we are to be mimicking here on earth, saying, Amen, along with all of God's creation, as we read in verse 14, an acknowledgement of that blessing and honor and glory and might being His forever and ever. And so, brothers and sisters, let us this morning, join in the chorus of saints and angels rejoicing together in Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior, singing together our redemption song. Please bow your heads with me in prayer. Heavenly Father, we are so grateful for Your Word. We are so thankful to know that You are true and that Your Word is right and is to be trusted. We thank You, Father, for this uh, vision that John was given and that John wrote down and, rev- and gave to the church that we might be benefited from it, that we might understand that there is one who is worthy, that there is one who is in heaven, who is watching over His church and protecting His church and leading His church to green pastures. We ask, Lord, that You would continue to make these things known. Lord, that You would help us to more and more each day realize and be able to to, uh, recognize the, the grace of God in our lives as the redeemed body of Christ. And that, Father, You would help us to live out our lives as the redeemed church here on earth as we wait for and anticipate and long for the day in which we see our Lord and Jesus face to face. We all pray. Amen.